Welcome to Headlines of the Future, brought to you by Bayer. Fascinating clues to help solve some of the most pressing global challenges, from climate change to feeding a growing population to curing diseases, can be found through science and innovation. In each episode, we will seek answers as to what the future might look like and how it will transform our lives for the better. I'm your host, Pai, and in this podcast, we get to hear from visionary scientists, thought leaders, and change makers who are exploring how the science of today may positively impact our lives in the future. We have two very remarkable guests joining us today to discuss the future of cancer care, a topic that many of us will be confronted with in our lifetimes. As the global population continues to age, cancer will continue to be a burden for patients, their caregivers, and healthcare systems. It's a tremendous challenge and at a global scale. Fortunately, huge strides are being made as we speak to push the boundaries of what is possible. Let's dive right in with our two esteemed guests and explore what the future of cancer care might look like and how science will improve and maybe even transform this field of medicine. First, a warm welcome to Dr. Alexandra Rizzo, a truly inspirational woman who has held many senior executive roles, both in biotechnology and pharmaceuticals. Alexandra is currently the president and head of research and development at Vividian Therapeutics, a biopharmaceutical company that uses novel technologies to develop precision therapeutics for devastating cancers and immune disorders. And since 2021, a subsidiary of Bayer AG. Great to have you, Alexandra. Welcome. Thank you, Pai. Happy to be here. Great to have you. And next, I would like to welcome Bayer's very own Professor Dominic Rittinger, who is Head of Research and Early Development for Oncology at Bayer Pharmaceuticals. Dominic is board certified in surgical oncology and holds a PhD degree in tumor immunology from the University of Munich, where he still teaches and holds a faculty position. Good to have you, Dominic. Thanks for having me, Pai, and very nice to see you, Alexandra. All right, to kick things off, why don't you both tell us a bit more about how you ended up working in the oncology space? Dominic, why don't you start? Ending up sounds a bit, <laughs> a bit trivial. It was a, it was really a conscious choice. Um, my mother was diagnosed with breast cancer, um, and she was, you know, uh, diagnosed in a very early stage. Uh, so prognosis was good, but we, you know, still kind of the entire family went through that experience of of diagnosis, uncertainty, you know, uh, the procedures, and 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 then kind of many years of being a bit in limbo. What's what's going to happen here? So. That experience was one thing, but I, I there was something else, and I think it's it's mainly the excitement around science and innovation and you know breaking boundaries. I, I think that would be my package how I ended up here. That was an incredibly touching story, and I can see why you're compelled to follow this field. So thank you for sharing that with us. How about you, Alexandra? How did you get into this field? Yeah, this is really a question that brought me back to my uh, student days that nowadays seem to be so far away. When I started studying medicine, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And this lasted for some time, I have to say. And it's just by the fact that I would go to the department, we would do these rounds and then, you know, um, I see patients that had surgery. And a couple of months down the road, you see them walking and being happy and skiing and doing different sports. And so this is why you go to medical school, right? You want to help patients. You want to have them happy and healthy. And this was my drive until I didn't have the rounds at the Department of Hematology where I really saw 
how these patients suffer and how weak is the is the need for new discoveries and research and and I really got driven by that and and then you start reading and you get deep into the science you understand uh, things on molecular level and you're like mm, this is fun this is interesting I think I can make an impact here so that's how I ended up doing hematology and later oncology Thank you for sharing that. And can I just say, both of you have such inspirational stories. It's wonderful that we have individuals like you working towards a better future for cancer care. So, Alexandra, let me address this question to you. The term cancer might suggest that we are talking about one disease, when in fact cancer is really a group of diseases. Could you tell us a bit about the commonalities and the differences between the different types of cancer and which ones are most common in men and women? So, as you alluded to, right, uh, cancers are a group of hundreds of diseases that can originate in almost any organ in our body. Um, our bodies make up to, you know, trillions of cells, of normal cells that form these different organs. And these cells grow, divide, and then eventually die in organized manner, right? So, these are the normal cells. Now, what happens in cancer cells, right, is that as they grow and then divide and then they fail to die in most of the cases. So what happens is that they're characterized by this abnormal growth and they have this capacity to invade other tissues, the capacity to spread to different organs. And these are the common features of cancers of the cancer cells. Now, what is different for every cancer is the blueprint of the cancer or the DNA uh, in the cancer cells. So again, if you go to normal cells, uh, the DNA will tell these cells how to, you know, will give instructions on how to grow, how to function and how to die eventually, right? But what happens in cancer cells is that the DNA is damaged and again, the cells don't die. Now, this DNA blueprint is different for every cancer, uh, cancer cell even. Uh, there are mutations in the DNA. There are deletions, so-called, in the DNA. And all of these will determine what type of cancer and in which organ the cancer will originate. Thank you for expanding on that. I think um, that's probably the most simple response that I've heard. And, you know, now I fully understand what we say when we're talking about abnormal cells and cancer. So thank you so much. Um, next question, Dominic, maybe to you. What are the most common treatment approaches today? So we've spoken about the types of cancer, but now let's speak a bit about the common treatment approaches and are they the same across these types of cancer? Interestingly, many of the approaches that we are using today originated from a long time ago and we basically have evolved and, and, and further developed those. So kind of the earliest description is around surgery. So basically cutting a tumor out. Um, that really started, you know, thousands of years ago. The second step, if you want, was the use of radiation therapy. So basically you would use radioactivity to damage a cancer cell. So that started in the uh, early 1900s. And then it really accelerates from here onwards. So over the past, what is that, 100 years maybe, we've seen you know just amazing uh, progress. So I can't really give you an exact year on this one, but, but chemotherapy was the next step. 
where you basically uh, use a toxin, so a, a, a toxic, a deadly agent to a cancer cell and give it to the patient, but not like radiation from the outside. You give it into the vein uh, of a patient and basically uh, that travels to the tumor and, and damages the tumor. Um, so not very selective, not very specific to the tumor because it also damages healthy tissues and organs in the patient. That changed um, about, I would say, 40, 50 years later, where we started to be able to make this more what we call targeted. Okay, So we started to understand how to get to the tumor cell in a more specific manner by sparing the healthy tissue. So basically, that was based on a new understanding of of tumor biology. So how does a tumor grow? How does that come? What Alexandra described earlier and on the invasiveness and how it infiltrates other tissue. And we also understood the, the genetic profile of a tumor. Um, so what, what's going wrong? What's going off from a genetic point of view? And we started to have compounds, drugs, pills actually available that, that we could give to patients that were much more specific. And then I guess the most recent advancement was what we call, I'm sure we're going to touch on this later, um, what we call cancer immunotherapy. So all of a sudden, we realized how important the patient's own immune system is to, to fight cancer. And there's a class of drugs that's called checkpoint inhibitors that basically unleashes the body's own immune system and enables immune cells to, to kill cancer cells. So that's the most recent big step forward. Um, so in summary, we've now arrived at a true armamentarium of, of means how to, how to treat cancer patients, but, but really lots of work to do still. Yeah, it's a great point. Lots of work to do still. You've walked us through some of the progress. Where do you see some of the unmet needs for patients? And where is the unmet medical need the highest? And maybe this is a question to both of you. I mean, I was going to actually link this question to the first one I answered, right? Remember, I mentioned that the cancer cells have the capacity to spread to different organs. And I think that uh, this is where I would start, right? So once the cancer has metastasized, is how we call it, right? It's more difficult to treat. And, and there's certainly a need for these patients. And a lot of research is being done in this area. but. If I zoom out a little bit and look at the field in general, I think there are maybe three areas, I would say. One is really in cancers that have very complex biology, right? So um, it's exceptionally difficult to study them, to find the pathways, to find the driver genes. And such an example is the pancreatic cancer. And these patients really have poor outcomes. I mean, the five-year survival rates are only 5%. So that will be one group that I would say really um, has a high need. Another group are the rare cancers. And, and an example for that would be sarcomas, right? These are very diverse, very few patients to study. And the findings are scarce. So it's really an area that I think we should put a lot of research. And then childhood cancers, right? I mean, <laughs> these cancers need to be treated differently. We know that they have a different presentations, but then there is really a slower progress in, in gaining access to treatments for pediatric patients. Um, 
Dominic alluded to some novel agents, novel, novel trends of treatments. And, you know, these targeted therapies are actually not yet even uh, tested in kids or we're just starting to test. So that's how I see the couple of groups where I think the unmet need is very high. Dominic, what's your view on this? I love the, the angle or the lens that you took here. And, you know, you mentioned pancreatic cancer is like devastating five-year survival rate. So, so let me try to maybe add a different angle. So if I hear unmet need, that means to me, it's like, what is still to be done to better help cancer patients? So now, isn't the kind of the, the best way that we can help is if patients don't even get cancer in the first place? <laughs> so we could argue that's where the true unmet need sits. And we know that you know, like I think it's 30 or 50% of new cancer diagnoses or new patients, it's actually preventable. It could be a lack of exercise, it could be pollution, it could be tobacco, you know, misuse or, or actually consumption in the first place, uh, you know, infections, I'm thinking of hepatitis or these chronic infections that may cause cancer. So basically saying uh, you, you are going to f- focus on, on the prevention and that there's a lot that's that's already been done in this. Um, another unmet need in this field could also be, uh, you know, early diagnosis and, and treatments. As we know, the earlier we catch cancer, the better we can treat it. That's a really great segue to the next question. And maybe, Alexandra, would you expand a bit on this? Given its prevalence, you know, many people dread getting diagnosed with cancer one day. I mean, this is a very real personal fear of mine, given my family history. And, you know, we talked about this a little bit, and Dominic, with with the response you just gave, more and more people are being diagnosed, but also the number of people that are dying from cancer is declining and survival rates are continuously improving. So do you think we will one day defeat this disease entirely? I really like how you pose the question, right? Uh, you, You use the word defeat which is, I think, really how we have to think about fighting cancer, if you will. It's going to be a complex approach, right? It will be an approach where we would need to really understand how to prevent cancer and only then how to treat. So I do believe that the miracle is to prevent and make cancer a chronic disease like diabetes nowadays. And I, I am confident that with all the advancements of personalized medicine, smart lifestyle choices that, uh, you know, um, we will prevent and treat a um, much greater proportion of cases than we currently have. Thank you, Alexandra. I think that's a good point to dive a little bit deeper because we spoke now about prevention obviously being the first point. But then the second thing is having an accurate diagnosis, right, of the disease. So effective cancer care really starts there. What's happening in that space, Dominic? What are the latest advancements? It's good to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of a patient, right? So we don't really go to the doctor if we don't have symptoms, right? Why Why would I? Uh, so so that is kind of the first thing, you know, a lot of cancer types, Alexandra described in particular pancreatic and, and lung, which are the top killers, there's a good reason. Both cancer types uh, become symptomatic, and that means that a simple cough that doesn't go away, uh, you know, stomach pain that doesn't really have another good explanation or something like that, that is what, what makes patients go to see a doctor. 
Um, but that is when a tumor is symptomatic and likely already in a, a pretty late stage of the disease. Um, so the question is really, is there any way to move that to an earlier stage of, of diagnosis? And here's what a lot of countries have done and are doing, and that's called screening, right? So basically the idea is you're testing on a regular basis uh, you know, patients that are non-symptomatic, no symptoms, just because they are you know, passing a certain age, for example, um, there's a recommendation in place and, you know, examples would be a colonoscopy, um, you know, breast cancer screening programs. Some countries look at thyroid cancer and then do screening there. So there are different programs and those have been pretty successful, but they have a couple of challenges that come with it. We need to catch those cancers that are what we call consequential. So basically, if you find uh, uh, you know, a, a cancer within such a screening program that would have not bothered the patient, and these types of cancer exist, then we may treat that unnecessarily, okay? So that is something that's a big challenge because uh, the patient is treated without a need for it. So so there are a lot of um, um, challenges with, with these uh, screening uh, programs, but in principle, it is, in my view, uh, it is the, the future. Right? So we are going to have better technologies in place that allow us to detect uh, cancer earlier. And just one example, maybe we will likely, and first the kinds of these tests are approved already, we, we may be able to just by a blood draw find microscopic particles of the tumor or of the tumor genomic information, so a DNA particle, for example, uh, and that will allow us to conclude what kind of cancer that patient has, okay? And that could be in a non-symptomatic state, and that could trigger an early treatment. So lots of stuff happening in this field. Maybe, Alexander, you want to comment on that as well, because it's a, I think it's one of the, uh, the fields where we see most movement uh, currently. I cannot agree more with everything you said, Dominique. I really think that the genetic testing, right, will be or is already a game changer in the cancer treatment paradigm. So, yeah, I mean, the more we invest now, the more we understand how to better screen. I think the closer we will be to the personalized medicine that I think we all dream for, you know, in, in, uh, to have in, in 20, 30 years. So, yeah, I cannot agree more. Well, that's really optimistic. And so in 10 years, Alexandro, will everyone who's diagnosed with cancer also get genetically tested to know the best type of treatment from the start? Yeah, that's a great question, right? I believe we are making big strides here. I think that with the advancement in the next generation sequencing that we already have nowadays, we are able to test a lot of patients. And I believe that as we, um, you know, evolve and we improve these techniques, we will know in about 90% of the cases, what is the protein? What is the gene that causes the disease? But I think we will run into a challenge here. I, I don't know whether, you know, we will have drugs for all of them. So I think we'll be discussing maybe a little bit later and touch on this as well. So we spoke a little bit now about genetic testing as a, you know, a potential way for us to be able to diagnose. There are other methods, and Dominic, this is a question to you. X-rays and other types of medical imaging methods also improve uh, the diagnosis. 
And this helps doctors obviously look for cancers in different parts of the body. What advancements in this area are you seeing? And very good, Pai, because this is likely what we're going to see is a very integrated and, and comprehensive diagnostic program that a cancer patient goes through. So that is obviously the molecular diagnostic on the tumor side, but it does include imaging. Absolutely. You know, it's a standard of care. Um, to keep it in simple terms, I think the major advancement that we are going to see is moving from the whole body image to the cell level. So we will at some point, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty optimistic that we will non-invasively, that means there's no real intervention needed, but just by a scan, uh, we will be able to look at um, the single cell level. So under, understand the tumor, but also understand healthy tissue, but understand the tumor, you know, the composition, you know, how, how many other cells are in there? What's the blood vessels? How do they look in, in, a, in a tumor? Uh, how many immune cells are in the tumor or not in the tumor. So in all of this will serve as what we call a decision support tool for the treating doctor. So uh, I think that's one part. And the other part, uh, I know this may go a little beyond uh, your question, but I think um, artificial intelligence and machine learning, um, this is a field where they will help us uh, immensely. Again, trying to keep this simple, what artificial intelligence does here, it helps us see something that we can't see as human beings or as doctors. So what we can do is look at a radiograph or a computer tomography or you know any type of imaging, and we can basically connect that to outcome. So what happened to that patient? And then this, if it's a large enough database, artificial intelligence can connect the dots and can say, uh, when we saw this in the image, this happened to the patient. And that type of connection is so important because then we, for the next patient, we can say, oh, we already know what's going to happen to this patient. And this is something we may not see as a, a radiologist or a treating physician. So this is uh, another field where we're currently seeing huge progress. So, Alexandra, we spoke a lot now about the different types of ways to diagnose. And I want to talk a little bit about cancer treatments. We have surgery, chemotherapy, and radiation, and these have been kind of the common ways in which we treat cancer. But cancer care is growing beyond those areas, and today there are other options, some of which we said will transform how cancer is treated. So which approaches are you particularly excited about? A lot of advancement has been really done in the very recent years. And if I have to choose you know, an approach, I, I would say, maybe in, in uh, bigger terms, uh, that targeted immunotherapies are the new wave or the exciting wave of cancer treatment. So these immunotherapies harness the power of your own immune system to attack the cancer cells. And, you know, some that you may have heard of include the CAR T cell therapies, other approaches, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, we've been long studying monoclonal antibodies, treatment vaccines, different type of, you know, uh, immune modulators. So I, I think that these are, you know, the targeted immunotherapies are showing a great promise for multiple types of, of cancers. I would perhaps single out two of them. I think that the CAR T cell therapy and the process of 
re-engineering of patients' own immune cells to attack the cancer is a true breakthrough in the immunotherapy. And there have been a couple of approved drugs in this setting. And then another approach I would say is an immune checkpoint inhibitor approach that is actually designed to stop the action of an immune system blocking protein. It's called uh, PDL1, such that the immune cells can destroy cancers. And so th- this is also, you know, another approved therapy, which I think really revolutionized the field of treatment of solid tumors. I don't know, Dominique, if you have any view or anything else to add to this. Um, yeah, so I, I think you probably mentioned the key breakthroughs uh, over the past years. Um, I don't know if you agree on this, but what we've really seen is a, is a, a massive acceleration of inventions uh, happening uh, over the past years or decades. That, that is really exponential, um, has a, a lot to do, in my view, with uh, access and availability to uh, new technologies uh, has a lot to do with large data sets, so data at scale, as we call it. So all of a sudden, a physician is able to not only look at a radiograph, but you know we have now means to put a whole package together for each patient and say, okay, what do we know about the tumor? What's the you know what's the radiology department saying to this? You know what do we know from previous treatments? You know all these things we can now put together. And we have, uh, you know, artificial intelligence helping us uh, then draw the right conclusions and find the right treatment. So this is another progress that is not, as you described, on on the uh, on the actual therapeutic uh, front. So I just want to add that, but I agree with you. The the therapeutics and our the breadth of of what we have available is is, is very impressive already. Yeah, I mean, I think that you're going in the direction that we kind of touched earlier, right? It has to really be a comprehensive approach, right? From uh, screening, prevention, treatment, and then using all the data um, available out there. What role does your team at Viridian play in this context, Alexandra? And then similarly, you know, Dominic, could you also share how the team at Bayer involved in this? Okay, so let me go back to actually a question you asked me earlier, right? Will will everybody be genetically tested, right? And so I said, yeah, even nowadays, uh, a lot of people are genetically tested. And we have this information, we know uh, even now what is the protein that is causing the cancer. But we don't have drugs for all of these proteins, right? So as our knowledge increases and we understand what are the targets that we need to fight against, it's going to be really difficult to keep up uh, with the same pace and invent new drugs. So this is what we do at Vividian, right? We have a very unique platform. We have a huge library of compounds and we are uniquely positioned like no other company in the world to actually find so far thought undruggable targets on the cancer cells. We are making medicines against them. So that is the huge part uh, of Vividian's everyday work. But in addition to this, I mean, and I'm sure Dominic will touch on this, right? We, We want to have smart clinical study designs. We now want to have the best approaches to test this drug in the clinic, Um, ideally biomarker-driven approaches. 
So these are kind of, I would say, the two main things that I see that Revitin is contributing to this fight against cancer. So Dominic, what is the Bayer perspective? So our most important perspective is obviously collaboration. We love Alexandra and her team, a uh, really important collaboration partner for us. Um, what I would describe our organization is what we call a translational medicine team. So translational because uh, the preclinical findings, so very early findings where we understand uh, how a cancer cell works or uh, you know, a, a pathway or a structure on the surface of, of a cancer cell. Take that, and how do I make a drug out of that? So how do I translate that into you know, clinical benefit for a cancer patient? How do I test that? So that is really what our team at Bayer does. Um, and we are also uh, conducting the very first phase of clinical testing. So basically, we call that a phase one study. Um, that's the first application of a new drug to cancer patients. So really from research to first application in the clinic, that's our contribution uh, here. Again, absolutely dependent on wonderful collaboration partners like Vividian. So I want to dive a bit deeper into one of the two aspects that were addressed now. And I think, Alexandra, you had mentioned this, which is around precision or personalized care drugs and the benefits, um, which are very clear. Will they replace today's standard of care? It will be a combination. I strongly believe that the precision medicine is the way to go, right? So we need the right drug, the right patient at the right time, right? And this will be the case for many cancers, but I still believe that there will be areas or there will be types of cancer that will take longer to understand and, you know, find that biomarkers that we need to tackle for each of these cancers. So yeah, I think that is the direction that we will go to. And, you know, on that topic, let's think a little bit about clinical trials. Are they up to the task in an era of increasingly personalized treatment? What needs to change to better understand the safety, the tolerability? And, you know, how do we get to that place where we're able to bring this to life, really? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> Again, with so many recent, I would say, biotechnological breakthroughs, right? The clinical trials have also evolved and still need to continue to evolve. So we have now multiple new trial designs. We call them the basket design, the umbrella you know, trial design, multiple platform trials. And all these are, you know, being used to supplement the standard phase one designs that, that, for example, Dominique was alluded to. So all of these new trial designs are allowing for, I would say, accelerated drug evaluation, right, based on the, you know, molecular-based individual treatments. So the overall approach here, right, is to match the drug to the patient, not to the tumor, right? So that's what we have in mind when we design these trials. Now, what are the challenges here? Um, the trials are becoming more and more complex, right? And more resources are needed from, from our side, from a researching side, but also they pose a, you know, a higher burden to the patients as well. So um, I think there will be a need to strike the balance here even though we are, you know, eager to learn more 
things. And I, I think it's going to pay off in the long run. So that's how I see the field developing in terms of clinical trial study designs. So Dominic, what else is being done to accelerate patient access to new cancer medicines globally? The first part is, is making that prediction, what's going to happen? Uh, because a lot of the things that Alexandra and her team and, and, and our team here at Bayer work on is, is really around future readiness. So because development takes a long time, we got to do a lot of stuff today that is really future directed. So I think in terms of, of new cancer medicines and access to it, the clinical trials, and that's another perspective on the clinical trial question, uh, are going to be really important because in many countries, that is the only way for patients to get access to a novel drug. So if it's not approved, it's really hard to get access to something that's working really well, potentially, right? And here's the interesting number. We know that globally, less than 5% of patients actually go on clinical trials. So there are many reasons for that. It has to do with um, awareness of the existence of the trials even. Uh, we have to understand that these patients are in a very, you know, very sensitive phase of their life, right? These are a lot of times uh, late-stage cancer patients. So they know they have a limited time to live and they're making very conscious choices. Do I really want to uh, go onto that trial, which is coming with a lot of what we call procedural burden. So they have to go to the clinic and they have to, you know, they get a biopsy and lots of blood draws and images taken. And so it's really hard for a clinical trial patients. And um, there's wonderful research on what makes a patient go on to a clinical trial. And you may be surprised, but a lot of it is really altruistic in the sense that they're saying, gosh, I, this may not help me, but it may help, you know, the next cancer patient. So wonderful, you know, survey results on this. In principle, I think just to kind of zoom out again a little bit and, and, and connect it back to personalized medicine, the more we learn, it's going to be a, a, you know, a, a, I would say curse and blessing at the same time, because our patient populations are going to get smaller and smaller, right? So we, 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 we understand it's not lung cancer, but it's a certain type and of that, a subtype. Um, so that makes it fewer patients and our trials are going to be uh, harder to run because we need to find these patients to prove that the drug is safe and actually works in cancer patients. So lots to do. Uh, I don't know if there's the time to touch on access to clinical care in general. We know it matters where patients live on this planet. Uh, that determines if they have access to adequate treatment, which is you know really not acceptable overall. Uh, it matters... You know, the ethnic background matters, what treatment uh, patients are getting. So there's a lot of topics that, that we need to address as a community, you know, of, of cancer researchers. Absolutely. Especially if we want to bring health to all. So just on that topic, you brought up some of the challenges. Here's a very personal question to both of you. Which challenges keep you up at night? And then on a more positive note, you know, what keeps you going to keep doing what you guys are doing? And let's start with you, Alexandra. Sure. I mean, the challenges that I see nowadays, right, uh, with, with cancer research are maybe twofold, right? So we spoke a little bit about both of those. I think what happens at the moment, we are generating a lot of data, a lot of data. And I just, uh, at the moment, don't see how are we going to integrate all the data that we are generating, how are you going to absorb, analyze, and, and utilize? I think it's going to be really 
a global approach needed um, to tackle everything that we know now. And then maybe in, in the same in the same direction, right? I mentioned we spoke a little bit about the clinical trials. Uh, I mean, how are we going to really test all the drugs that we are going to want to test, right? I was reading that there are 25,000 trials that are currently ongoing. And uh, the patients that are needed for these trials, it's more over 32,000. And these are already more than how many patients are diagnosed per year with these cancer. So how is our community going to make this happen? Are we going to collaborate? And again, something that Dominique alluded to, I think it will be the only way to move forward and make this happen. Dominique, curious to see or to hear your view. So you're asking what keeps me up at night? Is that, is that your question? That is the question. You know what? I I would add it's the it's the urgency that keeps me up. So like like realizing my own limits. You know, kind of like I we know uh, you mentioned um lung cancer is the most frequent cancer killer basically. Last year 140,000 patients or so died in the United States of lung cancer. So it's like, you know, gosh, this we <laughs> we need to be much faster, much quicker. And how do I focus? How do we prioritize? How do we collaborate? I mean, that's like the, how do we apply systems thinking? And it's like, like not everyone going off by him or herself and kind of like, how do I, how do I add that urgency that, you know, realizing that patients can't wait. It's like every day these patients die. So that is really something that I don't, <laughs> I've not found a, found a good answer for. And that really keeps me up at night and keeps me going, by the way. So it's kind of both. And so what is your vision then, Dominic? Um, do you think that we would, and I've asked a version of this question earlier, but might we someday be able to prevent, reverse, or even cure cancer? Is that your gut feeling? <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm smiling uh, because I, I came across this quote where someone said, you know, it's really hard to make predictions in particular about the future. So, so I think, but there's a, a belief, uh, there's, there's trust in the, in the field and novel technologies and, and the power of, you know, teaming up and tackling such a, such a devastating disease that I would definitely think we can speak of cure. Remember what we said over the past, uh, you know, 45 minutes or so, we basically said we are going to look into cancer prediction even, you know, what patients are at risk. We are going to look at early diagnosis. We're going to have much better drugs. We're going to be able to give it only to those patients who will benefit. So like all these things, if, you, if I, oh, don't forget the diagnostic advancement. So if we add all this up, I think it's not too bold to say uh, cure is realistic. It will take some more time, but I think that's what we should be aiming for. Well, we can all hope, and it's so reassuring to hear you say that. So we now get to the part of the episode where we get to ask you, what does the headline of the future look like? So let me ask you this question in relation to cancer care. Which headline would you like to see or read in 2050? And Dominic, why don't you start and then hand it over to Alexandra? That is a, that is a, yeah, it's a fun question, but it's difficult. So honestly, if everything comes true that we discussed and that we predicted, I would say in 2050, a spectacular headline, you know, whatever media 
we look at in 2050 would be you know first cancer patient diagnosed in this decade you know so so kind of like it should be spectacular that we even diagnose a cancer patient because we get so good at everything uh that would that would be something that, that then i can retire then i'm done that's a nice one that's a that's yeah that's really positive alexandra how about you for me i think that the holy grail in defeating i'll use your word uh, defeating cancer is if we can really um have a technology that can identify multiple types of cancer at once right and then pinpoint the exact location of that cancer in the body i actually have two headlines in 2050 one would be cancer intercepted we're done right we we just we can eradicate respiratory interception i i i want to dream there mm-hmm. and think about that but i'll i'll fold you know i to a second one as well i'm hematologist by training and i i have been really um, studying AML, acute myeloid leukemia for years and, and years, and, and it's such a hard disease. Um, and I, I do hope that before I retire, um, or even after I retire, I can read a headline that says AML cured. Couldn't agree more, and I really hope to read those headlines one day. Thank you both for joining us and for shedding some light on the exciting advancements of cancer care. You can just sense the passion that both of you have for your work. Those were both great headlines, and you gave us a lot of reasons to be optimistic about the future. I would also like to take the opportunity to thank our audience for listening to Headlines of the Future. I really hope that you found this conversation as educational as I did. If you want to learn more about the science and innovations that help address some of the most pressing global challenges, make sure to visit Bayer.com or subscribe. Stay tuned to our next episodes, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may get your podcasts. And remember, if you enjoyed this, please share it with others, leave us a rating and review. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you in the future.